Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Honey Dijon bridges scenes, cities, eras, and artistic mediums. Growing up in Chicago, she charmed her way into legendary clubs like Ron Hardy's Music Box from an absurdly young age. She first wrapped her head around DJing by watching Derek Carter play records in his loft, and she still counts him as a best friend. It was after a move to New York in the 90s that she really cut her teeth as a DJ and later as a producer. Manhattan provided an unmatched opportunity to catch a generation of DJs in nightclubs in their prime. And it also put Honey in touch with the fashion world, where she found success programming music for runway shows and playing records at the after parties. She's also DJed at some of the world's best clubs and nights, including Chicago's Smart Bar, Danny Krivitz 718 Sessions, and Panorama Bar. It's a rare DJ who can count Danny Teneglia, the late Frankie Knuckles, and Louis Vuitton designer Kim Jones as friends and associates. We visited her Manhattan apartment recently to help connect the dots, and our chat touched on gender and gentrification, and a recent tragedy at the storage facility where she'd parked thousands of her records. just suffered, I guess, back last fall, a bit of a, a setback, a bit of like every DJ's worst nightmare. What happened? Um, well, for the last 10 years that I've been living in New York, I just, you know, I, like most people, I have a really small space. And so I stored my record collection, which is probably every record that I've had since I was 10 years old. I've never thrown away a record. And I've stored that along with my I also collected magazines and art books too, you know, at the same time I used to just isolate myself in my world, listen to music and read books and stuff like that. So anyway, I was storing a lot of, most of my entire record collection because at a certain point I had switched over to digital DJing and so at that point I was buying a lot of MP3s and doing all that kind of stuff. So I put a lot of it in storage. I had just gotten back from Europe. It's so funny because it was right before ADE. I, I had decided not to go this year for some reason. I guess because I had some gigs in North America that I needed to take care of. And I'll never forget it. It was a Tuesday morning. I went to bed. I woke up. And I think it was the beginning of... I had some friends that were doing a book launch and all this kind of stuff. So I had my whole entire week planned out. It was like, oh, I'm going to do this, 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 this. Very New York. Very New York. Like, you can't do shit without, like, having a schedule. So I wake up. The first thing I wake up, I get a phone call from Manhattan Mini Storage, which is where I store my stuff. They never, ever, 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 ever call. And then I'm like, okay, this is really weird. And they said, um, there's been an accident in your unit. There was a fire in a unit, a couple of units down from yours. Can you come down? And right then, the red flag, just like, I started to panic and freak out. I was like, oh, shit, what, ha what happened? This, this does not feel right. I get down there and basically um, what had happened is is that a spark had gotten into another unit and it set off a, a small fire and the fire department was called and it just so happened my unit had, was two doors down from where the fire started and they just started spraying and basically I had my records on a shelf. I had gotten those IKEA expedite shelves and put all my records 
on those shelves and stuff like that because I would like to go in once in a while and pull things out and put things in and blah, blah, blah. And I think my heart just fell. I mean, it was just like watching my whole life. It was like, I don't know if people can experience, it's just like your whole being is just crushed in that one second. Like your like records that you've couldn't get second copies of. I mean, unless you collect vinyl, you have no idea. It's just like, there's like little moments of your life. It's like cells being just taken away out of your body. It was horrible. It was probably one of the worst things I'd ever gone through in my life. Just watching my entire life there destroyed. You said that this was a collection that you had started when you were 10. Yeah. Do you know how many records were there? I would probably say over seven or 8,000 records. Yeah, I mean, everything, like every 12 inch, my first 12 inch that I bought, my first album that I bought. You know, I grew up with Derek Carter and Casual and all those people. So Derek used to work in the Casual office. So Prescription was distributed out of there. So I had every Casual 12 inch, like white labels, every Prescription release, white labels, like everything. And I just my heart sank. It was just like, this is shit I can't replace. I'll never be able to find this sort of stuff on Discogs. And also it had sentimental value to me because it was handwritten, you know, Cash 236 or whatever, or, or to Honey, blah, 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 blah. So it had sentimental value because this is a part of my development as a person, as an artist, as a lover of music, as a lover of, you know, this was my life, basically. So it was very emotional, to say the least, and I'm still dealing with it. The hard part was the first person I told was Derek, and he was like, well, you need to go in there and, and make some executive decisions. And the first order of business is to get the paper off the records before it dries and to get those records clean before mold starts. So I really didn't have time to really sort of get too down about it. I just had to get in there and take care of business and save what I could. And I did a pretty good job. I called all my friends. I posted on Facebook. A lot of people came down and supported me. Actually, the, the storage unit sent a crew of like eight people. So I literally had like 13 people taking wet paper off records and cleaning records with alcohol. And I had to get 100 proof alcohol. It was like the most insane thing. And it was like 12 hours a day for five days because I had to go and play Smart Bar. This happened on a Tuesday and I had to go play Smart Bar on a Sunday. So I had no time to fuck around. So. And, and were you able to recover any of these records? I was able to recover a lot of stuff, but a lot of stuff I had to throw away. I mean, there were a lot of things that, you know, when I used to go to Winning Music Conference quite a few years ago when people would just give you white labels and stuff like that, and there were just things that I had never listened to, and if I hadn't listened to it at this point, I just, okay, I had to go. And, the, you know, at a certain point, I just threw away things that I knew I would just never play again. So it was a major executive decision. I think the most important records for me to save was my disco collection. I love disco, and, and that was basically... Growing up in Chicago, you know, all Chicago house music is based on disco. So I learned so much from all those records, you know, South Soul, Prelude, West End. And I had an entire catalogs of stuff. A lot of Italo disco, a lot of sort of new wave things from Chicago, because there was a store there called Wax Tracks. And I would buy a lot of stuff there, like Ministry, Front 242, Nitzer Ebb. So I just had a lot of stuff. And I was also buying a lot of um, high energy stuff. I mean, Stock Aikman and Water Stock Aikman and Waterman. I can never mm -hmm. say that. It's it's like always really crazy. Every Trevor Horn production, I was obsessed with Trevor Horn. To me, I was just needed to save things that had a lot of sentimental value to me. 
And that was my first order of business. So it sounds like this whole record thing started for you at a at a very very young at a very age. Early age yeah. I mean, how did you get into it? Tell me a little bit about well, your musical I'll, upbringing. I'll tell you. The funny thing is, when I talk to my mom about this sort of stuff, she says, "You know, when you were a kid, you know, you've always been into music. You had one of those little play school record things with the color disc, and every time you walked in the house, I want to play my record. I want to play my record." So. It started since birth, I, I should say, my love of music. Um, and my parents had me fairly young when they had me, and they used to have basement parties. And my parents were avid collectors of, of music. You know, I grew up listening to a lot of, um, my dad was obsessed with Marvin Gaye. We had a lot of the OJs, Marvin Gaye, Earth, Wind & Fire, Teddy Pendergrass, Denise Williams, Donny Hathaway, my mother and father were obsessed with The Whispers, which was on a label Oh, God, what is that label that Shalimar is on? Oh, my God, I always forget that label. It's like Solar Records. Mm. We had a lot of Solar Records in my house, too. My education with music started at a very young age through my parents. And my parents used to have basement parties. And I used to ask my mom, you know, I used to love playing records in my house and stuff. And I used to just say, can I play records before the party starts? So my mother would be like, yeah, you can, ha- you can do it, but you can do it only before your bedtime. So... You know, I would go downstairs and like had no idea that this would even be a career choice ever. This was just purely from like, oh, I would just put a little collection of records and I would go down on the little belt driven turntable and put one on and take one off. It's very much like how the loft used to be, but it was in my parents' basement on the <laughs> south side of Chicago. That was my introduction to music. So my parents were a huge influence. I mean, and, and it was just always in my house and always in the car and stuff like that. So, You've spoken a lot in other interviews mm-hmm. about how just the city of Chicago itself mm-hmm. was a huge part of, mm-hmm. of, of your education mm-hmm. in music. Well, I was born and raised there. So. Yeah. When, when did you start going out? How did you get involved in the scene? Well, the funny thing is, and people always think I'm joking, I've started going out, I would probably say around 12 years old. And people think, how in the hell did you start going out at 12 years old? Well, I used to have to take the subway to school after I was about 12 or 13 when I got out of grade school. So I would, you know, take the subway to school. And on the subway, they used to have little stops where they used to have little kiosks. And you could actually get a fake ID. So Just from a kiosk? Just from a kiosk. You had to know. It was the guy that sold the cigarettes that were behind the toll booth. I mean, you so had if to you, know. If you knew how it to It was ask. on the low, but if yeah. you knew where to go, you could get a fake ID for like 10 bucks. So I got a fake ID. And... I started going out. But also at the same time, you have to understand house music originally started in the early 80s in Chicago. So um, we never had bands in high school or grade school. We had DJs. So if you went to a school dance, there was a DJ playing. And usually in Chicago, if it was on the South Side, which is a predominantly black and Latin areas, they were playing a lot of R&B music. And they would be mixing it with a lot of sort of early house music. So that's how I guess I got started in the scene, just from being in the right, born in the right time, in the right place. And so I used to have a fake ID, and we used to go to school dances, and we had DJs, and they were playing a lot of disco and stuff like that. So that was my early beginnings. And I was lucky enough to hear a, a lot of the originators at a very young age. So, like, I went to the playground and heard Farley Jack Mixer Funk. I was able to go hear Ron Hardy once at the Music Box. Um, I heard Frankie Knuckles at CODs. And mind you, it was like I just blacked my way in, you know, or I went with somebody that had an older brother or an older sister because I went to a Catholic school. One of my best friend's sister, her name, which is the first female DJ that no one ever talks about, was Laura Branch. 
she was a regular at the warehouse and she was really close to Frankie. And so through my friend's older sister, I got exposed to, that was my introduction to Frankie and the warehouse and Ron Hardy and the power plant and all that sort of stuff. It's like, I'm like, what the fuck is this music? It was like unbelievable. And so I would literally, when Laura would come home from these parties, she'd still be high because back then they had acid punch at the clubs and no one ever talks. There's so much people don't talk about, you know, the acid parties that they used to have. And, um, the party would continue, but it would just be in a basement and people just come over and bring tapes and stuff like that. And it was incredible. And through her, you know, I just met other people like Jerry McAllister and like all these people that were doing a lot of stuff on Trax Records, having no idea, just being thrust into this environment, you know. So um, that's those are my early beginnings. It's pretty amazing mm-hmm. to get to cite people like Frankie Knuckles mm-hmm. and Ron Hardy as influences mm-hmm but to also like know them from having seen them. I mean, what yeah. was your impression of these two guys seeing them DJ? Well, I don't think I was really old enough to really realize what was really going on from a technical point of view. I mean, I always think for me at that age, I was just more about enjoying the music. For me, it was just that I could felt an emotional and spiritual connection to music. And I wasn't really thinking about how they were doing it to me, you know, which I think is so funny now because when I go to clubs now, the DJ is facing in front of the crowd is facing in front of the DJ. Back then, you couldn't even see the DJ. You know, it was about the speakers. You were in front of the speakers or in the middle of the dance floor. And so I think I was really too young to really understand what I was experiencing, but I knew that there was something magical was happening because I felt it intrinsically and I felt I could lose myself. And I also think. At the young age that I started going out, 12, 13, and 14, I wasn't mature enough or emotionally developed enough to even understand the music and what was happening, which I think was really great because it was just coming from a place of pure pleasure and joy. It wasn't about judging or train spotting. It was just like, what is this? What is this sound? Where is this Where is this string coming? Like, what is this vocal? And the first time hearing Jocelyn Brown or the first time hearing Thousand Finger Man by Candido and just the first time of hearing... Billy Who by Billy Fred, you know, all of these things, just like music I'd never heard before because it was completely different than R&B. You know, it was, it was like something else. And I don't, and I also think the acid punch <laughs> also probably contributed to a lot of my pleasure, but that's a whole other story. So, sure. Yeah. You are a trans woman. You, yes. And you've identified yes. uh, as, as a woman yeah, uh, since a very, very young age. Yes. Did you find this scene to be sort of accepting of you? Did you feel at home there? Well, you have to understand this music originated in black and Latin gay clubs. I mean, um, dance music or house music is a child of disco, basically. And disco is a child of R&B. So it just keeps going back and back and back. I think at that time, it was more open because it was more about where if you were into the music, where you house is what they used to say. So as long as you sort of came to the party and contributed something to the party, you were accepted. I think a lot of people tend to get trans people and gay people quite confused trans or identifying as trans is how you feel about your body and being gay is who you tend to be attracted to and those are two mutually exclusive things they really have nothing to do with each other you can be trans and still be attracted to women you can you know so it's just more it was just more of an open environment and it was great i felt more accepted there because of my love of the music regardless of what gender or sexual orientation that i was but of course you had to understand it was predominantly black and gay at that time so it was great you know i mean that energy is like was unbelievable and 
I think as a woman, too, when you go to these sorts of clubs, I didn't feel sexually harassed. There weren't people there trying to chat me up or trying to sleep with me. They were just there. If you were there, you were there for the music and you were there to dance and you were there for everything else. And of course, sexual energy is always an important part of any club. But I think for a lot of women to be able to go and feel free and to enjoy yourself is really very important. And gay clubs used to offer that safe haven. So, You said when you were first going out to mm-hmm. these clubs, you, mm-hmm. you didn't feel like you were completely aware of what was going on mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did when do you feel like you did become aware? And I would imagine that was uh, maybe when you started DJing or something um, like that. I completely became aware of what I was doing when I became friends with Derek Carter, um, who's still my best mate and a huge influence in my life to this day. He was working at a record store called Imports, which and then he went on to Gramophone, and that's where I met Sneak and DJ Heather and... Jim and I and all these people, because I used to work behind the counters and work in the stores at one every fucking body worked at Gramophone Records at one point. That's when I started to become aware of what was going on. And I remember being in Derek's bedroom, because Mark Farina and Derek Carter used to be roommates. There was a loft called Red Nail, and they also did a record called label called Red Nail. Or I think they were a production duo called Red Nail or something like that. It was that's when I started taking ecstasy, so everything's a little bit blurry. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, I took ecstasy. And if I sat up here and pretend I didn't, I think everyone did. <laughs> um, and we started going to loft parties. And oh my God, it was just like, that's when it hit me. Like, oh shit, this is what's going on. I remember Derek, I used to just go in there and they would be making tapes because they used to make tapes to make money to pay the rent to sell like gramophones. So everyone used to make mixed tapes and stuff, which by the way, I still have to this day, which I gave to Derek to digitize because I said, you know, I have your whole fucking history in my house. And he's like, give them to me. I want them. So when Derek and Mark used to make tapes, I used to just sit in and watch them do that. And I became completely fascinated by how they were mixing records. You know, there really is a craft to DJing. It's a craft. I don't care what anyone says. And it was like taking two things and creating a third or fourth thing out of it. And I totally became totally obs- I became totally obsessed with that. And that's when I started to really get into the art of DJing and started to get more heavily into the music. And then I used to sit in on some of their sessions and stuff because I would smoke tons of weed and make tracks. And, and Derek used to keep all these really crazy journals and all these sort of spiritual books and shit. He had all this sort of mystical stuff. I mean, Derek is like a brainiac in a way. So that's when I started to get involved in all of that sort of stuff. Learning to DJ from watching Derek Carter Mm -hmm. and Mark Farina make tapes, Mm -hmm. was that intimidating at all? Not at the time, because I wasn't DJing at the time. I was, it's so funny because that's when I sort of like, a lot of people don't know this, but um, John Digby used to sleep on Derek Carter's couch when he came to Chicago. And that's where I met Ralph Lawson from the 2020 crew. And like, and that's when I met Luke Solomon and Shea Damier and all these people because everyone used to just go to Red Nail. It was like Party Central. It wasn't intimidating because I wasn't a DJ yet. I was still a punter and I was still clubbing. So for me, I was still enjoying the music. And I remember trying to mix records on Derek's turntables. He's like, get the fuck off my tables. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> it's like, get off now. Because, you know, Derek can be a bit of a bit of an old man sometimes. <laughs> but even when he was like 20, I guess I was getting an education without knowing it. I was watching one of the best do what he does best. So I guess I was getting a real great education from that. So what eventually brought you to New York? Because it sounds like you had a a very strong network in Chicago. I did have a strong network in Chicago. And the reason that I left is because it was about the time that Derek started going to London quite a bit. And he was DJing there quite a lot. And Mark had moved to San Francisco. And that's when he started his whole mushroom jazz thing. And he was starting to DJ there. And also I had... Let me backtrack. So at Red Nail, this was the time that Derek Carter had started going to London and was playing and Mark had moved to San Francisco. I met a 
a guy who was a friend of their roommates. His name was G. Most, and he met this friend named Ken Johnson. And Ken Johnson was a really big DJ in the sort of the gay scene in New York City. We became really great friends. And he's like, oh, if you're ever in New York, you should come visit me. And so I since my friends were all leaving and flowering and growing and stuff like that. I sort of felt like, well, I think it's time for me to figure out what I want to do with my life. And so I went to New York to visit my friend Gant, and I got there, and it was just like my whole head almost popped off my body. It was like, and sort of in the mid-90s when every when New York was still amazing. It was amazing at that time, you know. And I went to so many amazing clubs. There was like Sugar Babies on Monday. There was Jackie 60 on Tuesdays where David Morales used to play and Danny Tenegla used to play sometimes. There was also Wednesdays with Salon Wednesdays where Gant Johnson had his night. There was Thursday night at Sound Factory Bar. Friday was either Sound Factory or Twilo. Saturday was usually Save the Robots. I mean, I literally went out. When I would come to New York and visit my friend, I think I would stay Sunday to the following Sunday and not and sleep for like three hours a night because <laughs> there was so much going on. I had a job at the time. I got fired from that job. I got severance pay. I guess in the 90s, if you got like $3,000, you could make that work in New York. Imagine $3,000 the same in Berlin in 2000. It was like, you could really stretch that out. And I came to New York and I slept on my friend Gant's floor, started hustling, started, well, not in the sense of selling my body, in the sense <laughs> of waiting tables, working at stores, but the whole time just going clubbing every single night. And also at the time, Derek was pretty plugged into in the New York scene. He was doing stuff. I think he was hooked in with the downtown 304, who was it? I forget, Linda, who runs downtown, who was such a distribution center. Through him, I met Kevin McHugh, who used to run Maxi Records. And then through Kevin, I met Danny Teneglia. And I never forget this. And Danny will, Danny always brings this up. The first time I ever met Danny, I walked up to him and I said, Hi, I'm Honey. I'm friends of Derek's. And Kevin's, I'm going to make a record with you one day. And Danny looked at me with horror. I was like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> he was like, and ever since then, we have a big laugh about it. And um, that was my beginnings of in, in New York. So I literally came to New York, like probably a lot of people who went to Berlin because of the club life. It was so vibrant and it was amazing. And there was things going on every single night. And it was a really great time. This was right before... Um, What's that guy's name that shut everything down? Starts with a G. Yeah, the, whose name shall not be mentioned <laughs> because I will not let that name roll off my tongue because he completely ruined the city of New York. I'll, I'll say it just in case we have any listeners who aren't aware. Giuliani, yeah, Giuliani Mayor Giuliani. Who completely sanitized New York City and took the fun out of it. But that's a whole other conversation. But before that happened, it was great. New York was great. And I got such an education. And, and talk about hearing a second whole way of hearing music, because Chicago House is very disco-based, swingy, loopy. It can be raw. There's a lot of rawness in it. I mean, you know, if you go back to the sort of like Armando and Pierre and, and all those guys, it's also very raw. That was the thing that people don't realize about Chicago. You had the Frankie School of Thought and you had the Ron Hardy School of Thought. Ron was completely raw and was playing a lot of sort of English synth pop along with Acid House and playing records backwards and upside down. And he was really an experimental artist. And, and to hear that music was amazing. And that's where all the tracky stuff came from. Frankie was more, I always called him the Black Science Orchestra because it was always strings and vocals and lush and beautiful. And it was, to me, an extension of what Salsa was doing in Prelude and Western. It was just a continuation of MFSB, you know, really beautifully made dance music. 
And so you had those two clashing things happening at the same time. So when I came to New York, the tribal thing was huge. Junior Vasquez was ruling the city, tribal records, Twisted America. It was like a total, they used to call it pots and pans back in the day because to people that liked melodic dance music, they was like, oh, it's just repetitive drums for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. But it was also an education too, because I think sometimes music that you don't like, you also need to listen to to understand why it's moving other people. So I never have a closed mind if something that I'm not particularly connecting to or that I don't understand, I don't necessarily knock it because if it's moving lots of people, you have to understand that there's there's something there. So I, I submerged myself into that music as well. When Danny got his residency at Twilo, that really changed, changed my ears to music because he was playing a lot of stuff that was coming out of Europe at the time. So, You talk about Derek Carter kind of being mm-hmm. this mentor figure almost in, mm-hmm. in Chicago. Would, mm-hmm. would you say that Danny Teneglia was that person for you here in New Danny York? Danny Teneglia was definitely that person for me here. Um, he sort of took me in when he started doing Twilo. I still get chills thinking about that room. I mean, it was probably one of the last big rooms in New York. And I'll get to Body and Soul because that was the second, that was the third and most influential thing in my life. But, you know, it was the first time I heard Maurizio on a sound system. Can you imagine hearing Maurizio at like six in the morning on a, on a sound system, M4, M7, M6? And he was playing a lot of European stuff, you know, um, Frank Sinatra, Miss Kitten. It was the first time I heard Miss Kitten. It was the first time I started hearing a lot of German stuff, a lot of Perlon stuff, a lot of... Um, it was just amazing. It's like I never heard this sort of stuff before mixed in with sort of tribal stuff he was slowing down the tempo i think at that time everyone was playing 130 beats per minute and danny came in and started playing 125 126 and it was just like to hear that on a massive sound system was just mind-boggling it was an amazing amazing experience but then there are a lot of other things that were happening too besides danny a lot of smaller djs like there was ted patterson who was doing a saying that doesn't get a lot of love you know hector romero was doing a satoshi tomi was playing you know, there was never a shortage of people playing in the city. Deep Dish would come down from D.C. to play. Um, the Merc Boys would come up from Miami. You had Seven Fisher doing a lot of stuff. Peter Rawhofer was doing um, interesting things. So New York was f- so full of stuff at the time. And as a DJ, where, where did you kind of fit in? Well, I started DJing because I, w- I was a little bit arrogant because I felt like I wasn't hearing music presented in the way that I heard it was being presented in Chicago. Even now I get accused of being very eclectic in my DJ sets. And the reason is, is because I don't, I never look for genres. And for me, I think if you stay in one lane all night long, you can really bore people. And I get bored as a DJ as well. And I try to tell a story and give a, and from how I was taught to sort of create a, an environment or create a mood and, I don't give a shit if it's techno or deep. I, I don't get into categories. Categories are for grocery stores. <laughs> if you need sugar, you go to that aisle. If you need tomato paste, you go to that aisle. I am not interested in, in, in categories in the least. And in New York, it was just like you had to go to Shelter to hear Soulful House. You had to go to Junior to hear tribal things. You went to Danny for what was happening in Europe. You went to... And I just thought, this is kind of like... This, we don't do this in Chicago. If it rocks the party, it rocks the party. It doesn't, you know... And so... I just started playing. Actually, Danny was the first person. I had a two-channel Radio Shack mixer, <laughs> was my very first mixer, and one Technique's belt-driven turntable. I didn't even have decks yet. I used to speed records with my finger to see if it would work on the dance floor. And I started DJing on a little small bar on the Lower East Side called Chicago House. It was on Eldridge Street. 
it's sort of funny how all of that started, but that's that was my start as a DJ because I felt like music wasn't being presented in the way that I had experienced it in Chicago. So out of necessity. Looking back, I, I think it was a little bit arrogant, but I think when you're really, really young, most things come out of arrogance. So <laughs> I'm not mad at that. I'm, I'm not mad at that. Most of us, uh, people listening to The Exchange, reading RA, mm -hmm. are going to know you from coming out of this kind of house music world. Mm -hmm. But you have another foot in the fashion world. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how you got involved in that. Um, I got involved in the fashion world actually through music because the thing about New York, that brings me to Body and Soul. You know, I remember going to the Body and Soul, the very first parties. It was dead. I think for the first year, this is the thing about what, you know, I, I feel is missing too now. It's like if you open a club or you have a party, you're not allowed to develop it. It has to be a hit right out the gate. And I think because we live in these big metropolises and rents are so expensive. And so if, if you don't throw a party and it's a huge success the first night, you're not allowed to, to develop that and to connect and to get people to know what you're doing. And another thing that we don't have anymore is resident DJs. We really need to get back to having a place where an artist can develop and develop a crowd and develop their sound. And and so when I started going to Body and Soul, a lot of fashion people were going to Body and Soul. What Joe and Francois and Danny were doing was really incredible because there were three different, it was like a th the three-headed monster, used to call them, because Francois had his whole history in disco and Joe was doing the soulful house thing and Danny was, you know, it just completely worked. For me, Francois was always the more experimental one out of the bunch. He was not afraid to pay techno or afraid to play like or just a dub record alongside things and so I met a lot of people through that and then just sort of DJing I was DJing in a lot of gay bars and 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 a lot of designers happened to be just happened to be gay men and so that's where I met people and you know I met Hedy Slaman I met Narcisa Rodriguez Kim Jones and Ricardo teaching all these people just from clubs. And so I guess, you know, I've always been very true to what I do as far as always incorporating disco and Chicago house and techno into, into what I do. And so it was just basically I got into f to the fashion world through friendships, just through friends, basically, is how I've gotten involved. And, and it's sort of mushroomed. And I like the fact, I think most creative people, I don't really see a separation between art and music and, and fashion. I mean, I think any creative field, they're all sort of a trilogy and they're always a like, a connection but I love my gear <laughs> you know and I think most DJs do too or, or most creative people but for me it's just really I didn't get into fashion because of anything other than just working with friends and all the people that I work with have respect and love the music that I play I mean Kim Jones who I work with with Louis Vuitton has a complete knowledge of disco and house it's not like he's just some some knob that just like wants to hire a fashion DJ or I call them the laptop DJs. No disrespect if you use a laptop to DJ, but there's a little bit of a stigma when you just show up with a laptop <laughs> and Serato and play pop music at a fashion event. It's sort of cliche. I don't do that. I, you know, they respect me as a real DJ. I, you know, I request a proper sound system. I go in and, and I tend to play, you know, what I would play at any party and I don't water it down. So I'm really happy for that too. I read a quote of yours and I'm, I'm not going to say it exactly correct, okay. but, but you expressed this sort of wonderment that you could go to a fashion party and everybody's wearing this these really cutting edge clothes. Right. But the music it's is... It's like listening to a wedding DJ. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, does that just seem completely odd to you? It just hit me one day because I... 
I thought, you know, you guys are supposed to be tastemakers of the world, and and we could be at a wedding or or bar mitzvah, and you know, no disrespect to our bar mitzvahs or weddings, people do them and have them all the time, but the music t- does not tend to be very cutting edge unless you're a DJ <laughs> having a sort of situation. I just found it shocking, and it was a paradox to me, and I thought this is a crock of shit. You know, why are they sitting here listening? They could turn on the radio and I don't understand they're supposed to, and they're so judgmental and so supposed to be so evolved. And I found it to be completely the opposite. And the more that I've talked to people in the industry, fashion is a very conservative industry. It likes to give the illusion, but it's basically the, the emperor's new clothes, but it's, you know, it's, it's a fun world. I mean, what I really appreciate also when I work with Kim, I go to, the atelier a week before the show and I actually sit in on fittings and I sit in and watch things being made and I sit in and watch the ideas being tossed around you know to me I don't care about the finished product to me I'm really obsessed with the process and it's just like making music I think a lot of people now especially since the market is so oversaturated with artists that people tend to like oh I need to crank out track after track after track and I think you know you're not allowed to really gestate and make music for the process of making music. I'm not speaking for everyone, but the process should always be more exciting than the end result, in my opinion. So that's the part I love about fashion is the creative process. And when, by the time it goes down the runway for me, I'm not really interested. But yeah, I always thought, you know, why is it that these people are sitting here with all these like supposedly latest fashions and then listening to the worst music ever? I just could never put my head around that. But the friends that I work with, they're not like that, so I'm really happy just to, to keep it keep it cute. <laughs> I mean, what do you find the reaction is from, uh, like, when you're playing a fashion party and people are maybe used to being played down to, like, mm-hmm. hearing mostly music that they're going to know, mm-hmm. and then you show up and you're playing disco records and underground house mm-hmm. and, and whatever else. What's the reaction? Do people get it? Oh, well, you get requests, <laughs> and, and you get people saying, um, 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 I'm friends with, I'm like, and I said, look, you know, I don't do requests. I'm not a jukebox. I got hired to do this. You know, you can always leave. <laughs> That's my response. Like, no one's making you stay here. You can always leave. No one is holding here. you here against your will. Since most after parties for fashion things are usually private events, so the, so the people that I'm involved with usually know what I do. And I get, at this point in my career, I get hired for what I do. But, you know, there's always some drunk person that wants to come up in here, you know. And my favorite thing is, can you play it off my iPod? <laughs> Or can you play it off my phone? I was like, right. Like, I actually carry an eighth-inch cable with RCA connectors to play your fucking phone at a party. I think the worst request that I ever got was I was doing an after-party. And in the middle of the night, these two girls come up to me. Can you play some Tom Waits? I'm like, it's midnight. (laughs) Tom Waits is a great artist, but I don't think this is the correct tempo or vibe for 12 (laughs) o'clock at this moment. So, you know, you just get used to it. I, I, I try to be very elegant about it and just say look you know i was hired for what i do and i'd appreciate it if you just let me do what i do and just go have fun mm-hmm. so you put together music for for runway shows as well well i work exclusively with kim jones for louis vuitton and in the last couple of years i've worked with jojo Moroder. this last season i worked with nelly hooper it's like unbelievable. It's really it's it's a total different thing to put together music for a fashion show than it is when you're in a club because everything is precise. Like I've had to do edits of Kate Bush and I've had to do edits of of other things. Editing acoustic music is really difficult, you know. I mean, if you do something that's basically 4/4 four, four to the floor, it's really great, but when you have vocals and strings on top of guitar, you know, it's it's really impossible. Um it's challenging in that way, but it also pushes me to see how 
far I can go as a, as a person. Um, I think there's an art to doing edits correctly. So it pushes me to a point of seeing how sometimes mistakes happen, but you, you know, you learn a lot from mistakes. But Kim is great. Like one year we used MFSB, Love is the Message, the Danny Crivet edit because he loved it so much. And that was taken from Paris is Burning. So there's always a history of of things and so creating music with Kim for the runway it's really great because we've used Izembra by the Talking Heads he really loves to bring his influence into his work as well and Paris is Burning is one of his favorite movies and so we pay a lot of homage to Larry Levan we pay a lot of homage to the ball culture we pay a lot of homage to his culture growing up in England from his club days um, the last collection was influenced by Christopher Nimeth who was an English designer in in the early 80s that moved to Japan and so it's so great working with people like that because when you're approaching the music, he's really respecting the culture that it comes from. It's, he's not using these these things lightly. And so it's also incorporated into the clothes and how the show is styled. And so it's great because for me, my favorite time frame is New York City between 1976 and 1983 and Chicago between 1989 and 2004, I think. So... Um, it's super rad to be able to like incorporate that musical history in runway shows and stuff. So, You alluded to this a little bit, but mm -hmm. what is the process for putting together music for a runway show? I mean, well, you go in, well, usually um, I'll talk to Cam and he'll tell me what he's feeling for the season. And I'll usually go a week before the show and he'll show me the collection. And then he'll write down a bunch of things that he likes and then we'll research together or he'll have a specific song that he wants to do in mind. And then I'll try to put things up or and I because I do the seating music as well. So that's the music that's when people are entering the venue and then also the show music. So it's a collaboration. I'll pull things if you if you'll talk about, oh, you know. I'm really into Patrick Crowley. So we'll pull some Patrick Crowley and then Patrick Crowley, I'll start my mind, I'll start racing. So what else goes with Patrick Crowley? And then I'll start thinking like, well, what about some Human League stuff? Or it's just, I'll just start putting a lot of stuff out of my head that I think would work with his ideas too. And I think that my education from Chicago, because like I said, you know, I not only didn't go to house clubs, I went to like industrial clubs, I went to new wave clubs, I went to jazz bars, I went to all sorts of kind of, Chicago is so rich in music. So like I said, I was really into Nitzareb, Front 242, Ministry, which is where Green Velvet comes from. Green Velvet is really industrial music with a house twist. So the process is just pulling things that we love. Um, Arthur Russell, we'll, you know, we'll usually stick with things like more of his experimental stuff, like Arthur Russell, Patrick Crowley. He loves Sea Hunt. He loves um, Throbbing Gristle. Just so many things. I mean, the references can go on and on and yeah, on. Yeah, but so. it, it sounds like a critical point in this process is that things have to happen at a precise time. Oh um, my God, down to the minute. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so this is very different from a DJ set at, at a party or, or at a club where you're able to kind of make decisions on the fly. I mean, this yeah. is, you, you know, have a script. Yeah, it's really precise. I mean, down to the last, say we have 40 looks, you know, I've I've had to go in and when I'm, I usually edit in Ableton, it has to be to the second literally to the second like every show is like seven minutes 32 seconds or you know it's it's really like science but it's completely different than being in a club and having a couple of cocktails and and, and you know whatever else you need to get through the night and and get and get on with it 
But I enjoy both processes. I'm a, I don't know if you can tell I'm a very organized and disciplined sort of person. So I quite like that masochistic side of myself <laughs> of having to do something to the exact minute. It's sort of, I'm fascinated by it. Mm. Some of my friends call me OCD, but you know. What can you do? This is how this, <laughs> this, is how this box comes. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to sort of flip the script yeah, a little sure. bit and ask you about fashion in the dance music world, in the in the club world. What do you mean, jeans and t-shirts? Oh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I mean. In the same way that music is um, maybe an afterthought within a lot of parts of the fashion world, you go to a fashion party and you're hearing music that's not nearly as quote unquote cutting edge as what you're seeing on the runway. Mm. Do you think that fashion in clubs is sort of takes a, a very far backseat to the music that's being played in them. It didn't used to. When I was, when you know, in the early days of Chicago, you actually used to get dressed up to go out, you know. Um, that was a signifier in Chicago if you were wearing certain things, certain fashionable things that people knew that you were into house music. A lot of those were riding boots or jodhpurs or certain Italian designers. Like a lot of Armani was super big at the time. But I think it's still happening today. I just I think streetwear is just more prevalent now. I think, you know, like Palace out of France, if you see someone with a Palace shirt on or Pigalle or Marcelo Berlon, everyone's wearing those T-shirts. I think it's still the same. It's just different. It's a lot more casual, which I appreciate. For me now, I'm at a really weird place because I'm sort of have started get, taking not a disinterest in fashion the way that I used to be, but I just find that it's more about consuming than creating and just about acquiring things. And for me, style is about how you live your life, not the things that you wear. So I'm really not so interested in brands. I think to me, going to like a brand is like eating at McDonald's. Like there's one on every corner. So I'm not really interested so much in fashion. I'm more interested in style. And you can put, you don't have to have money to have style or labels to have style. You just have to have imagination and taste. So for me, I don't give a shit what you're wearing as long as I'm seeing you or your personality and I'm seeing an authenticity to who you are as a person. That to me is really more exciting. So that could be from a thrift store. It could be skatewear. It could be if you're rocking Supreme or to me, I don't really give a shit. I just want to see you. And to me, fashion is ideas and I want to see your brain on your body. I want to see you make an effort with your brain. <laughs> so that's what fashion or style is to me. I don't even like fashion um, because that's of the moment and style is forever so yeah i love thinking of that differentiation yeah, between fashion, fashion is, and you know, style i think fashion is for people that don't know who they are mm -hmm. you have to you're buying into things to try to identify and connect with other people i don't think fashion is for people who have a really strong sense of self mm -hmm. but you know fashion is really i think fashion is for really young people and i think it should be enjoyed and i think it, it should be changed often because you don't know who you are when you're 16 17 18 19 or whatever so um, that's who I think fashion should be for. And I think fashion is also should be used as you get older. I think it's always the middle bit that's the funny part about fashion. But I think when you get older, you shouldn't give a fuck. And when you're <laughs> young, you shouldn't give a fuck. <laughs> so you should be just as eccentric. Because women tend to, the thing about being a woman or, or living as a woman, you tend to become invisible after a certain age in society. I'm not saying everyone does not see that, but women of a certain age aren't considered valid or have value, so they use fashion to signify that. And so I think fashion can be used for different reasons, and it can be political. And I think for a lot of women, it does make them visible if they're wearing lots of color and over-the-top things. Um, that's an unfortunate thing, because women are, contribute to half the world, so I don't understand why that they're <laughs> not valued as such at a certain point. 
But it's the same for men. You know, I always say it's so funny because, you know, I have this conversation with my mother a lot about it, you know, talk about a certain age of a man being in the club. And I said, you know, it's funny, you know, the only time you see a 40-year-old man in a club is if he's a DJ or if he's running the club, which I always think is really hilarious. But, <laughs> you know, that's that's my take on style and fashion. Still. Yeah, sure. We're here in your studio now, yeah. and I see you've got a fair amount of music gear that doesn't just look like turntables. Uh, no, I have tons of stuff. Yeah, so you're doing a lot with production these days. Yeah, I'm doing a lot with productions these days. I would say I've become more confident in the music that I make in the last two to three years I've always made music but more in a spotty way I've started putting stuff out on music for freaks and classic in the early 2000s and stuff but for a long time I was working with other people because I wasn't confident enough to do my own thing and I really hadn't felt like I had anything to say musically because of all of my just I mean can you imagine having Derek as a friend or Danny as a friend it's just sort of like you know and then you know in the last couple of years I've become friends with Seth and Loco and Mr. G has always been a huge influence on me and I remember meeting Colin years ago there used to be a record distributor here called Syntax and I just walked up to him before he blew up in the last couple of years and I was like you know I've always been a huge huge fan I mean if anyone can trademark an open hi-hat it's him (laughs) or some rides some 909 rides it's Mr. G but I've always loved the simplicity of his music and I think it's really hard to make raw simplistic music and there was a period of time when you know when I started to wanted to make music, when the minimal thing was really big, and then that minimal thing changed into electro, and I just couldn't figure out. And then there was a lot about using effects. Everything was about it was more about how the, to dress the music instead of letting the music speak. And I just felt like I couldn't find my voice, and so I didn't have the confidence because I really wasn't hearing. Maybe I should have always been making the music that I love because it wasn't there, but I just felt like I think you can be insecure if you don't see what you're doing out there. And then when this house resurgence started to come back within the last couple of years, I started to feel secure enough to start, well, I, I know this, I can do this, I, can, I have something to say. And so that's why I've started to be, feel more confident about making music and, and having stuff in the studio. And I've gone through a couple of things. I've had like different gear and... I finally found out what works for me, you know, have a piece of hardware and stuff like that. <laughs> but, um, I just had the whole Roland Aria situation. I have some things and boxes and stuff around. Um, but it's so funny. Who would have ever thought that a 808 or a 909 would be $2,500 these <laughs> days? And, you know, it's like so I'm, I'm loving that you can get back to that rawness of the music. And I think the best way to learn how to do music is to just surround yourself by people whose music you love and to be hands-on. I think that's the best way to learn. That's the best way I've learned anything is learning how to DJ from people that were the best at what they do and learning how to produce music and learning tricks that they don't teach you in school and learning other people's accidents and like, oh, I discovered this way of doing it from that. And, you know, there is no right or wrong way to make music because as long as you're being who you are and letting it come from your soul, it's right. You know, no one has to like it. But I think people now approach music from how many likes I'm going to get. I'm not stupid. It's a business point of view. I know if you're a club or you're you're a promoter and and you're popular, then it becomes a business. But I think if you're a real artist and you're making music for the sake of the creative process, and this is something that you need to get out of your soul, you shouldn't judge your music. You should just do it and let other, you know, because everyone's bringing their taste to music from their experiences in life and how they clubbed and who their influences were. So I tend to think that um, I've started to become much more confident in the stuff that I've been doing lately. So 
you're playing more than ever these days it seems yeah. like what are Who some knew? of <laughs> what are some of your favorite places to play do i have to be really cliche well i think when you say favorite places to play then if you don't mention that person well i think my favorite place to play is any time that i am connecting with the audience we're both having a good time i think the only thing that separates me as a dj from the dance floor is the dj booth for me, I just feel like I get to, oh, I get to dance behind, you know, for me, I don't think I'm any different than someone who's on the dance floor, but I've always had amazing times at Panorama Bar. That place is just really, that place is still really magical. I mean, some place I've been around for 10 years and still, when that place is on, it's like no place else. Smart Bar in Chicago is always, that's hometown for me. That's always a great time. Um, I've been playing a lot of 718 sessions in New York with Danny Cribbett, and that's been absolutely magical. I play a lot in Toronto. Toronto is like my second home. Toronto has probably given me more love than any other place ever out of all the places I play in the world. I think I've played every club in that city, from Footwork to Coda, Sound Bar, System Sound Bar, the Docks. I've played... Toronto has a really special place in my heart. But I think that for me, as long as I get to play, that's the best place for me. As long as I get to keep playing music that I love and making people dance and I get to have a bit of a wiggle <laughs> and enjoy myself and expose new music and play old music. And I used to play a lot at the end. That was fun. Dance Tunnel is fun. God, there's so many places that, I mean, I just feel really fortunate that I get to do this. You know, anytime someone re requests me to play or it's a great day. And how about New York? I mean, we're Ooh. quite a bit on from the guy whose name starts with G we're now even moved on from Bloomberg. How is the music scene in New York City right now? Well, I tend to think it's not as diverse as it used to be. The thing that I am frustrated with about New York, it seems like it's a city of imports. It doesn't support its own, which is really sad, I think. I mean, no one has a residency here. There are really great parties. The Black Market Membership guys are doing things. Resolute, City Fox is doing stuff. Output, Verboten. But they tend to be more techno-oriented. Which is fine. I love techno, and, and I think they do really great jobs with what they're doing, but I don't hear a lot of, there's so much talent in New York that doesn't get a chance to be heard and supported, and I really find that sad. And like I was getting back to the residency thing. I play every week at a small bar on the Lower East Side, but it's, it's like a 250 capacity, which is, which is fine. And it's rare that I, you know, when I'm in town, I tend to play there often, but, and also there's this party called Shade in Williamsburg. But I don't hear a lot of house in New York, I think it's more techno-oriented, but I think the scene now is more vibrant than ever, than it has been after Giuliani. I mean, it was, you know, completely, we don't even have, I think the only big clubs that we had were, God, the last big club that we had was what? Um, Twilo, Twilo, right? No, and then they tried Sankey's. That didn't work out. And so, well, Sankey's wasn't even as big as Twilo was. We used to have three mega clubs in, in New York. And the same thing is happening in London. They only have Fabric and Ministry. When we're talking about a club of that scale, being able to hold that amount of people. I think New York is more vibrant than it's ever been in years. And like I said, the people that are doing the verboten and output and Resolute and Black Market Membership and you know, they're doing really great stuff, you know. So I think it's really healthy. There's a lot of underground things happening, loft parties. You know, 718 is still happening. There's still the loft with David Mancuso that's still happening. So there are things here. You just have to look for them. But there are lots of people doing really great things. I just think the world all over, I think everyone tries to compare cities. And I think that's, you just can't do that. I mean, we don't have the same amount of space as Berlin. And um, I think comparison is just, 
you have to ex- accept each city for what it does, you know. But I think New York is great at the moment. The real estate is the only issue that I have with and the gentrification because I think people that can afford to live here are not the most cutting edge people. And, you know, it's sort of noise complaints and all this kind of stuff. And I say, well, if you don't want to live in a big city, you know, you can't come from suburbs expecting to live in the city i mean it's noisy it's dirty you know people are you know this is what you come to the city for but i feel like they're trying to bring the suburbs into the city and it's just sort of that's kind of boring so it's too clean it's really clean at the moment i I miss the debauchery and the darkness and the dirtiness of new york so (laughs) and in the 90s there was a lot well there was a lot of that so and the after hours we used to have a huge new york was known for after hours there's a few starting up here and there, but um, I think New York is in a good place right now, honestly. I don't think it's any different than any other major city. The same sort of stuff is happening all over mm-hmm. um, with, with noise complaint. Any city that's going to It's happening in Berlin, too. It's happening in Berlin as well. Yeah. Every, you know, it's happening in Berlin. You know, one city that's really interesting that's, to me that is becoming fun again is Paris, concrete and zigzag and bada boom and like you know there was a point when there was really nothing happening in paris and the wrecks there's stuff happening in poland warsaw is supposed to be the next berlin (laughs) um you know there's a lot of talk about romania you know i i just think as this music continues to i mean it's such a global thing i think you're going to start hearing more out of the way places become no one owns it anymore you know no one owns this this thing anymore so i think uh New York isn't doing bad compared to everyone else. Thank you.